Hello, you're listening to A Little Bit of Largham, a podcast exploring a more connected and human approach to climate conversation. A space for questioning, learning and discovering the many ways a sense of balance can come to be. My name is Marla and today I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Renata Koch Alvarenga. Renata is a youth, gender and climate justice advocate from Porto Alegre, Brazil. She's the founder and director of Empadeda Clima, an educational initiative about gender equality and climate action focused on youth in the global south. Empadeda Clima produces informative content on climate justice in Portuguese, Spanish, English and French and engages in multiple advocacy platforms such as the UN Girls Education Initiative and the UNFCCC. Renata has presented her work in seven countries and is involved in many global initiatives, including Youth Constituency of the UN Climate Change Convention, where she is co-lead of the Gender Working Group, and UN Women, where she is a national youth gender activist representing Brazil. Renata is also a Girls 20 ambassador and currently works with politics and diplomacy in Rio de Janeiro. She's also a vegetarian and loves going on long walks by the beach in Ipanema. In this conversation, we discuss topics surrounding climate and gender justice, which Renata shares so much valuable insight into, and how achieving gender balance in positions of leadership is essential in building a more just, sustainable and equitable society. Renata shares about her youth activism, which is rooted in intersectional feminist action for climate justice, and we also talk about her activities as founder and director of Empadella Clima. She also explains and unpicks a lot of climate policy lingo, which can often be very inaccessible and quite overwhelming, so I was incredibly grateful for this. We talk about the important qualities of empathy, listening and optimism within positions of leadership, as it is only from a place of hope that we are able to create a vision for a more positive and beautiful future. A lot is covered in this episode. It's such an informative chat and I really hope that you enjoy it. So yeah, I think we'll just jump into it. The first question I would love to ask you is quite a broad one, but I always find it super interesting to learn more about how you got into doing what you're doing. And yeah, so I'd just love to ask what was your journey into climate justice advocacy and activism? Definitely. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today, especially about my favorite topic, which is climate and gender justice. So this is super, super exciting. So for me, in terms of how I started my journey, well, I am from Brazil, born and raised in Porto Alegre, which is a city in the south of Brazil. And I always grew up going to visit my grandma on a small farm that she has close by and going to the beaches all over Brazil. I currently live in Rio de Janeiro, so it's a big part of my current life. So I would say nature was always a big important of, of my journey ever since I was a little kid, even though I wasn't really taking active actions towards sustainable development as, as a kid. Uh, I, I do think that it has a big relation to what I do now in terms of where I grew up and, and my journey as a young girl. But uh, in terms of actual climate activism, it really started when I turned 18 years old and went to college and started getting more involved in sustainable development in the world of the 2030 agenda of the United Nations, because I actually 
had the opportunity to study in the US, in New Jersey, when I was in undergraduate uh, school. And it was in 2015, so right around the same time that the Sustainable Development Agenda of the UN was being adopted, and then the Paris Agreement at COP21 was being adopted. So I was always surrounded as a student of international relations in that world about sustainability, and global policy. So I basically, for me, it was a very natural decision to go into climate justice activism, realizing that if I'm gonna study global challenges, climate change has to be a central challenge that I'm gonna focus on just because of where we are right now as a society, as a humanity. So um, it was very natural in that sense. And it's been, it's been a very difficult, challenging, but also rewarding work at the same time. Yeah, amazing. And I can imagine in that time, you're being so surrounded by other people speaking and caring about these issues. So it must have been a, a kind of mix between overwhelming but exciting time. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely overwhelming because there's always a lot going on. If you think about uh, the UN Climate Change Convention and the discussions, which I'm sure we'll discuss later on, um, there's always so much to discuss in terms of different topics and mechanisms of global climate policy. But at the same time, it's so exciting to meet other young people from all over the world that are engaged in this issue and that they have this common goal of uh, solving climate change and of achieving sustainable development for future generations. So it's it's exciting because I always I also got to make a lot of friends in this journey of five or six years as a climate advocate and gender justice advocate. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's so important to have that kind of supportive network of other young people you know are caring about these things and taking action and have inspiration from them too. Yes, definitely. Especially when you see that the barriers that you think are there when you're growing up in a specific country, they no longer exist when you see that everyone has that common challenge in terms of uh, achieving gender equality or solving climate change or having clean water for everyone. So those are global issues that, of course, when you think about developing countries and countries with less access to those things, that's different. But when you think about young people who are passionate about doing that, it's, it's, it's great to be able to count on people that have different lived experiences and different life stories, but at the same time, you're able to connect with them on some level. And you mentioned there about gender inequality, and I'd really be interested to hear for you when you started to make the connections between gender inequality and the climate crisis. For me, as a, as a Brazilian, I always knew, I think, about these inequalities growing up, even though I wasn't as conscious of it, I guess, as I am now um, that I work in this intersection. Brazil is one of the deadliest countries in the world for leaders of indigenous and traditional communities. And the Amazon is, is where most of these killings and conflicts of, of land and environmental defenders happen. So, of course, as a Brazilian, Brazilian which is a country that holds uh, a big part of the Amazon rainforest. I think we always grow up aware of not only the vulnerability of specific groups, but also the leadership of indigenous women, for example, in terms of protecting their land. But I would say that the, the time where I started to connect the dots was when I attended COP21, the UN climate conference in Paris in 2015. And I really saw a lack of gender balance in the discussions about climate justice in the Paris Agreement. And for those that don't know, the Paris Agreement is the first global climate treaty to include language on climate justice, gender justice, which is absolutely brilliant and amazing. 
but I would say there's still definitely gaps to be filled in relation to that. So going to that conference and seeing that there wasn't a balance in the in the decision making table of people talking whether talking about whether gender equality would be a part of this so important global agreement kind of it was a moment where it dawned on me how important this is and why we need to bring that to our communities our realities in the global south to make sure that we have that representation in the future yeah for sure and when you're talking about the representation of women in these un conferences as well i want to draw on a post that i saw um on the empedera clima account which we'll talk more about you setting up that organization in a little bit but a couple of weeks ago you posted uh something saying when women rise co2 levels fall and i think that's such a powerful statement and i was wondering if you had any more that you'd like to share about that Definitely. There's a lot of interesting data and statistics about why when we have more women in power, whether that, that is women in Congress, in Parliament, or in, in STEM fields, like working as scientists, we have more equality and better results. So that's super interesting. And you can go either way, depending on what area you're interested in. So in this case, I believe it was more about women in decision-making spaces, women in leadership roles, and how when we do have that gender balance and equality, uh, we're able to pass, for example, more climate-friendly agreements, more envir environmental-friendly agreements, and have more ambition in terms of climate action, just as an example about gender and climate. But of course, that, that could be applied to anything. I think there's been a lot of buzz as well in the media about how women have led a lot of the great responses to the COVID-19 pandemic as well. So considering all of those intersections and why when we have women who a lot of times because of the patriarchal society we live in and because of the lived experiences that they've had, when they are able to occupy those roles and share their experiences, we have much richer conversations and much richer results. So that's a little bit about that post and why when we are able to have women rise up, we are able to cut on global emissions and have a more sustainable future, basically. So that's why we really try to emphasize it in Podera Clima, this idea of gender equality as a crucial tool to solve climate action. I think that's super interesting point to make as well, especially when we consider like globally, the population is pretty much a 50-50 split between men and women. And then seeing the disproportionate representation of women in positions of power, it does go to show like how much is lacking in, in voices being heard. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so there's a clear connection in there about how we are able to have a more sustainable, equitable and just future for all. And it's about having gender balance. It's as simple as that. Yeah, definitely. And as a Brazil delegate of Girls 20 and a youth delegate of UN Women, I'd be really interested to hear more about what's involved in these roles. Definitely. Those are super exciting roles. I'm super happy to talk about them. So the Girls 20 um, platform, if anyone hasn't heard about it, it's the only platform for young women to speak directly to G20 leaders about the urgent issues that girls and women all over the world face. So they have something called the Girls 20 Global Summit every year where delegates from 20 plus countries arrive for a week of leadership, training, advocacy, and networking. So of course, because of the pandemic last year, it was online uh, and not in Saudi Arabia because it's usually where the presidency of the G20 is. Um, I had the opportunity to be the Brazilian delegate, so the representative of my country in those discussions. And despite it being virtual, it was still a life-changing experience for sure, because I got to really 
not just do work on uh, policy making focused on gender equality, but also I got the chance to stop and reflect on my skills as a leader and really learn how to lead with empathy because of course I have my lived experiences as a Brazilian and that's super important, but we also have so many different lived experiences when you're working with brilliant young, young women from 20 plus countries. And depending on the topic, some of those experiences take precedence, for example, when we're talking about indigenous communities and things like that. So knowing when to listen, stop and listen to, to what someone else has to say is so important. And it definitely has helped me um, be a better leader and have a better outcome of the Girls 20 experience because we did get a chance to develop a communique, which is basically this document with recommendations to the G20 leaders based on our unique experiences and expertise as, as Girls 20 delegates. So being able to work throughout many, many months and come out with this global document, very powerful um, in terms of our priorities for the G20 leaders was super special. So it, it, it was definitely life-changing. And with UN Women, what I can comment is that there's something called the Generation Equality Movement, which I don't know if anyone, if everyone has heard about it, but basically, Around 25 years ago, the UN passed something called the Beijing Declaration and Platform Fraction, which is basically this very powerful and ambitious document about gender equality at the global level. And so that was in 1995 and 25 years have passed. And of course, we know that the situation is not as we expected it to be in terms of gender equality and diminishing the wage gap, for example. So a lot of the generation equality movement is about getting young people passionate and engaged in these conversations again and thinking about specific agenda items such as combating gender-based violence or thinking about girls' education, women's health, things like that. And I was really fortunate to be invited to be one of the 300 national gender youth activists for this Generation Equality Movement. So in Brazil, I believe there's five of us. So I'm one of those five activists that's working directly with UN Women in Brazil and UN Women Headquarters in New York to basically advance on this agenda. And of course, because of my background, I do tend to focus a lot on feminist action for climate justice, which is one of the six priority areas. But it's just been such a privilege to talk about all of this. And I would say even the peak of that was this just this recent March, I was able to be the youth representative at the opening of CSW, which is the Commission on the Status of Women. It's basically the supreme body of the United Nations to talk about gender equality. Happens every year um, as of 65 years ago. And I had the great honor to speak at the opening. I was, I think, the first Brazilian to do so. So because of being a gender youth activist at UN Women, I was able to access those opportunities. And of course, from now on, I hope to bring more people with me and increase that access and privilege that I've had with other people. So it's been it's been a really exciting ride, despite of the pandemic, being able to connect with people on a virtual level um, so much in the past few months. That sounds so incredible. And it really sounds like you've taken so much away from those experiences. And I want to pick up on what you were saying about leadership as well. And listening is such an important quality and such an underrated one, I think, in so many ways. And I'm really happy to hear that that's something with regards to leadership you see as such an important quality. Um, but I'd be interested to hear as well in terms of what you imagine to be a strong and powerful leader. What are the other qualities that you feel are super important? Because I think we all need more of those types of leaders in the world. 
Definitely. I totally agree with you that listening is an underrated quality maybe of leadership nowadays, but it's so important. We actually did some exercises within the Girls 20 Summit about just listening to what other people have to say and then commenting on it and doing what they call active listening, right? So doing those exercises, if anyone has the chance to do that in their organizations or communities, I think it's super important. But in terms of what I would say it's super important um, for leadership roles, one of the things that I value the most, especially when we're talking about climate action, is optimism and leading with positive action. And there's actually someone that I really admire. It's one of my climate action idols. Her name is Cristiana Figueres. She's the former executive secretary of the UN Climate Change Convention. And she always says that when you're dealing with climate change, you have to take a glass half full approach. So thinking about the positive sides of it, because she says that basically in the history of humankind, if, if, if you want to tackle any of the global challenges that we have, we are not going to be able to do so with pessimism. You know, we need to, to have to make that con conscious choice of being an optimist because we then only when we have that, we're able to create a vision for, for a more positive and a more beautiful future. So I would say having that determination in your work and leaving with, leading with positive, positive energy in whatever you do is so important, not just because of how you're gonna approach that global challenge, but how you're gonna work with other people as well, because that's, that's kind of what I try to do with my team at Impodera Clima and with other people that I work with. It's starting meetings with maybe some music or some positive news and really, um, channeling that positive energy because we know that working as climate change activists and advocates is already so hard. We started this interview talking about the overwhelming side of the things. So I always keep that in mind and how important it is to have some lighter topics in the conversation and have that positive energy no matter what you do. So there's many leadership qualities that I could mention here, but I would say listening is one of them as we, as we discussed, but also being an optimist and looking at things with that positive light is always going to be the best way forward, I think. I really love that because we can't kind of have the motivation to keep going if we can't allow ourselves to envision that beautiful future. Um, so it's really lovely to hear that. And the way that you start your meetings, I think is something anyone who's starting meetings, take that on board because I think it would just make them a, a much more positive and enjoyable space. Yes, exactly. I would also love to ask because you've attended multiple COP negotiations now and I'd love to hear a bit more about these experiences but also reflecting on the different COP negotiations have you noticed anything shift in the types of conversations that are being had in these spaces? Yes definitely so so far I've had the privilege of attending two COPs. One of them was COP21 in 2015, where the Paris Agreement was adopted, and then COP25 in 2019, and then some other high-level events, such as the ACE high-level event in Austria, and ACE basically stands for Action for Climate Empowerment. So it's the agenda item of the UN Climate Change Convention that talks about education and access to information. So that was a really special experience as well. And of course, in the, in the past year, because of the pandemic, um, there were a lot of really great virtual events, such as the UN Climate Dialogues in 2020. So it's definitely been a, been a privilege to be a part of those discussions, which are so high level and exclusive in a way, and not just attend, but kind of see how 
myself and my positioning as a, as a young Brazilian woman in those spaces could make a change and how I could bring my knowledge and experience in those spaces back home to, to my community, to my friends, um, my colleagues in, in, in work and activism. So in terms of uh, your question about what has shifted in terms of conversations, I would definitely say that I've seen a positive shift over the years. And the one example is that when I attended COP21, we were just starting to further explore the gender intersections at the high level space. So um, the UNFCCC, which is basically the acronym for UN, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, is the only one out of the three real conventions that we have. So real conventions um, were basically the conventions adopted at Rio 92 in Rio de Janeiro back in 1992. And they are the Convention on Biological Diversity, the UN Convention to Combat Desertification, and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So out of all of those three conventions, the UN climate change one is the only one that lacked a specific mandate on women's rights and gender equality from the outset, from the beginning, way back in the 90s. So the I, I guess that increases a little bit the importance of us pushing for this agenda as much as we can. So I would say in the past few years, especially since 2015, the climate convention has made a lot of big um, strides in integrating gender across all of the areas that we talk about in the climate policy negotiations. So the Paris Agreement, as I mentioned, integrated gender equality in the preamble of its document, which is super important when we talk about political action. And then in 2017, two years later in COP23, the first gender action plan was adopted, which is basically this huge framework that now exists within global climate policy about how we're gonna um, achieve gender equality via the policy spaces and also on, on practice and decision-making. So there's been a lot of great work being done in, in recent years. And then if we want to compare those two experiences, because of course, at COP21, we had the Paris Agreement. And then at COP25, which was the last COP, um, now that COP26 is set to happen at the end of the year in the UK, at COP25, we had the enhanced version of the, what we call the Lima work program on gender and its gender action plan. So it's basically where the action plan is housed uh, within the UN. And uh, it was enhanced, which means it was renewed in a lot of ways and made more ambitions in a lot of ways in the last COP. So I know this is a lot of policy lingo and maybe hard to follow. And I still have a hard time sometimes to work through all of this. But I do think it helps in terms of highlighting all of the work that's being done, not just by policymakers and governments, but also by civil society in those spaces, because we do have a bunch of different um, civil society groups, what we call as constituencies. So there's the women and gender constituency, the youth constituency, and they're basically working groups that put pressure and present priorities to policymakers about the issues that we're discussing here today. So it's been, it's been really exciting to see that positive change happen over the years. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for all of that insight. I think I know what you're saying. There is a lot of sort of technical language, but I think it's so important that these conversations are had more because not everyone has the opportunity to attend COP negotiations and to start to understand all of these systems. It's it's so beneficial to have people like you talking about their experiences to to help it become more accessible, that people can have an idea of what is happening in these spaces and how how they can influence the decisions that are being made as well. 
Exactly. That's the thing. I feel like a lot of people see maybe in the news a little bit about what's happening in the cop spaces, but it seems so far away. And I know that because my, my friends back home here in Porto Alegre, they don't know much about that. So it's, it's, it's what we try to do. It's what I try to do a lot in my activism. It's bring that knowledge back to, to my community in an accessible way, because Yes, we have so many great things happening at the global level, but it doesn't mean anything if we're not able to explain to people who work at the grassroots level with um, climate action, if we're not able to explain to them what the Paris Agreement stands for or what the Gender Action Plan stands for. So making those connections is crucial, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think something that's important to flag as well is with regards to the Paris Agreement, from my knowledge, it's not something that's actually legally binding. Um, so that even being something that people can be aware of to know that they still have a power to put pressure on governments and grassroots organizations can do such valuable work. And having that connection between both what's happening on a more global scale and political scale and also the contribution of grassroots organizations like there's so much value in both of these things yes exactly it's it's so tricky and i mean that goes into what i study which is international relations because with the legally binding part there's some parts of it some actions that are and some are not so it's it's tricky because um it, when when something is legally binding it means that you know they have to adopt that whoever signs that and adopts that as signatories in terms of countries they have then to to bring that at the national level in Congress and pass that into national legislation, right? So this is tricky because of course, we're dealing here with 197 parties, which are part of the UN Climate Change Convention. So there's bound to be disagreements in terms of cultural and national aspects of each country and each region. So it's, it's tricky to get an agreement as ambitious as that as to be legally binding. So there's only some parts of it, but at the same time, I don't think it reduces its important in any way because of course we know that the UN has a lot of agreements that are just recommendations but it's really you know to serve as a way for society to to get organized towards this common goal which is uh, fighting the climate crisis or achieving a sustainable development in the long term so yeah it's if you couldn't tell before it's definitely something that I really believe in in terms of um, international relations and I do think it's a great way for us to um, achieve positive change. Yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit as well. I was watching some uh, interviews that you gave and also some talks that you gave at some of the COP negotiations. And in one of them that I was listening to, you were talking about a rights-based approach. And I think that this is so important because we can't separate human rights from the climate crisis. And I'd love to hear if you have a little more you'd like to say about that. Definitely. Yeah. I love this concept of rights-based approaches because at the end of the day, this is what climate justice is. Climate justice is basically just taking a rights-based approach to climate change. So it's, real, it's really considering um, how humans, how people are more affected by climate change and why it's important that those people that are disproportionately affected by climate change, um, such as indigenous peoples, young women and girls, peoples with disabilities, Black people, um, all kinds of groups that are more vulnerable in a lot of different scenarios just because of how our society works. And considering how for us to truly have climate justice and implement a rights-based approach um, in climate action, we need those people to be in those leadership and decision-making roles. So having those rights-based approaches is so important. And I think 
when we are able to connect with people that live that every day, live that reality of climate change every day. Because uh, we all do, of course, but if, when you think about small island developing states, for example, or um, when you think about people who live in rural areas, in agricultural areas, those people live that every single day. You know, they, they, they see what the droughts does to, to their lives, their economic abilities and things like that. So having a rights-based approach is about not separating those two things. And I have actually a great friend who's a, an indigenous woman from the island of Guam in the Pacific. And she always talks about, you cannot think of indigenous peoples as separate from the land. Like the land are the indigenous peoples. They're the same, part of the same thing. And that's the thing. It's such an important thing for us as human beings. And I think sometimes people lose a little bit of that perspective. So bringing that back, using that concept of a rights-based approach is for me, a really great way for us to, to achieve climate action um, in a way that leaves no one, no one behind, right? Because that's, if anyone has heard of the motto of the 2030 agenda of the UN, that's what it says. It's doing all of those things, achieving economic development without leaving anyone behind. So considering all of those people that are suffering today with all of the impacts of climate change and making sure that they're part of the solution. And I love what you were saying there, um, that your friend was saying about the connection between people and the land. And I think that's something that's become so lost in many societies and recognizing that connection and how rooted people are with what is happening with nature. It really shows how you can't separate the human aspect from this. Yes, exactly. We need to get in touch with that. And even even in my case, I started this uh, interview talking a little bit about how in Rio I'm close to the beaches, but I guess in our everyday lives, we're also busy. And right now, even with the pandemic, it's hard for us to get in touch with nature, right? And understand the importance of of, of nature and of how much our, our climate is connected to us, to our lives, to our well-beings, to our health, right? So getting back in touch with that, I think will be um, a really positive way for us to to achieve a sustainable uh, future for everyone. Yeah, I completely agree. And I would love to move on now to talk more about your work with Empadena Clima and how it actually came into existence because you founded it. So I would love to hear from you that progression and, and how it came into existence. Yes, for sure. I'm always really excited to talk about um, Empodera Clima. It's, uh, it stands for Empower for Climate in, in Portuguese or Spanish. And as you mentioned, I'm the founder and director nowadays. And it's basically a program that's part of a larger nonprofit called Care About Climate that's based in the U.S. But a lot of the work that we do is focused on the global south, specifically on Latin America, because that's where I'm from and my focus. So our aim and mission is to empower young people in the global south to adopt a gender lens in climate change impact and solutions, especially through multilingual educational tools. So we actually have content in English, Spanish, Portuguese and French with that goal of making content about gender and climate justice more accessible to everyone. And then the other side of things is that we try to provide opportunities for young people to advocate for a more sustainable and equitable future for everyone. So overall, it's it's two main things that we do. One is just true accessibility. We want to fill the gender gap in climate action and breaking down the language barriers in gender and climate justice. And then the other side is advocacy work. So we, as we spoke, we attend a lot of dialogues at the global level that can shape the way that people think about uh, gender and climate and they can implement solutions to whatever they do, whether that is um, at the business level, at the government level or civil society level, using a gender lens. 
And the, the creation of Empodera Clima happened almost exactly two years ago on, on Earth Day of 2019, on April 22nd. And after it, was, it happened after a long reflection process of mine in terms of creating this initiative. Um, so just to give a small summary, way back in 2017, I had my first um, opportunity to attend a fully funded global conference called the, the Yanqing Social Innovation Forum, which happened in Beijing in China and at Peking University. And there we had this opportunity to pitch a project that we wanted to work on related to sustainable development. So I pitched something along the lines of what Infodata Clima is today, but of course it needed much work. I didn't know what I was doing back then, but after a few months and years of reflecting on what type of initiative I could create that wouldn't emulate something that already existed, but it would also be very original and impactful in my community in Brazil. And I found this amazing nonprofit that I mentioned, Care About Climate, and basically pitched the idea to the CEO of creating this program that would act as a gender pillar to the great work that, that they already do on climate education. And it really worked out. And the rest is history. We're almost two years here with really great volunteers, a great team working towards gender and climate justice. That's so incredible. And the work you're doing as well, like making the information accessible, but also empowering women to have a platform to talk about these things and actually have their voices heard is so important and it kind of follows on to the next question I wanted to ask and again it was based on a talk that I listened to you speaking about which was talking about how we shouldn't be seeing women as victims and actually or seeing them as vulnerable people we should be seeing them as powerful leaders and I'd love to hear more about your your vision of how how we get there and I feel like Empodeta Klima and the work that you're doing has has a strong part to play in helping to empower women and yeah I'd love to hear anything else you'd like to share on that. Yes of course I think it's it's really important to emphasize that connection that of course women are a lot of times more vulnerable to climate change but that's not all they are. We can just explore this narrative of, of seeing women as victims, but also explore the leadership side of it because it's not, even though it's not talked about too much, it's already there for centuries. Indigenous women leaders have been taking action and taking the stand. So we at Impodera Clima, we really want to make sure that that's highlighted. So a lot of the work that we do on social media is highlighting those perspectives, especially about young women already um, taking the leadership and leading the charge. So I would say that the big idea is this concept called gender mainstreaming, which I don't even think we have a great translation in Portuguese for that, but it's a really great word, I think, because it's really mainstreaming gender in climate action because we're not able to mimic effective policy if we don't understand the social, economic, and power structures of our society. So, I, I mean, the greatest example, it's looking at the COVID-19 pandemic and seeing that social inequalities all over the world have been exacerbated and there's key factors that are directly proportionate to the impact and responses to, to both climate and the health crisis, for example, including gender, of course, but also race, sexuality, social class. So all of these intersections are so important, which is why I always say that you can't have gender and climate justice if you don't think about intersectionality and think about all of these intersectional issues and aspects to, to our society before you take action on something. So I think by, by including these groups that are most affected in the conversation, using an intersectional approach, 
we can effectively mainstream gender in our work, in our climate work. So essentially just integrating gender equality and a gender equality perspective at all levels in terms of policies, projects. So that's a little bit about what, what it would mean, I think, to shift the narrative from victimism or from vulnerability to leadership and powerful action. So as you say, it's what Impodera Clima has been focusing on in terms of research work. And we've been super fortunate to join quite a few decision-making spaces to bring that perspective of young women as climate leaders in the global south. So it's been really exciting, but I do think we have a long way to go on that matter. No, I really appreciate you sharing that perspective and valuing the intersectionality of all of these issues. I think it's so important, especially when we have conversations surrounding the connection between gender and the crisis. It's not in isolation to all of the other social injustices. And that was kind of leading on to this idea of collective liberation and recognizing that all marginalized communities need to be prioritized and listened to and empowered in these situations. And yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you are taking this intersectional approach within the activities and the work that you're doing with Empodera Clima. Definitely. Thank you for that question. I think it's super important because, again, there's two sides to it. One is gender mainstreaming in policies and making sure that gender is present in whatever work that we do, but also making sure that your team, your leadership, whether we're talking about governments or whatever it is, also have that within the teams, right? And we, we started talking about the stats and how when we have more women leaders in government, we have better results. So it's a two-way street in that sense. And within our work, I will say that um, not just within Impodera Clima, but a lot of times the, the feminist movement or climate justice movement, when we talk about gender in the past, it has been correlated just to women's empowerment and how women are more affected. But we know that there's a way broader spectrum to that. And we have to talk about LGBTQIA plus communities and how trans women are more affected, things like that. And I will say it's something that we're just starting to explore, which I'm really excited about. So we just released an article some time ago about how LGBTQIA plus folks are more impacted by the climate crisis and right what role they have to play in climate justice. So I would say it's for us, it's through our team, which is very diverse and we have people from a lot of people from Brazil, of course, but we also have people from Argentina, Ireland, Belgium, all kinds of countries, basically. And when we are able to have our weekly meetings and share and exchange our different perspectives, we're able to have richer conversations and also make richer content, which is a lot of what we do. We have this database where we post our content, both original and compiled content. So I would say in terms of considering all of those intersectionalities, we still have a long way to go, I have to recognize that, but we are very interested in engaging in those conversations. And one way that we're starting to explore that is through partnerships. So very similar to what I was saying before about Girls 20 and sharing and listening to others' lived experiences is what we try to do through partnerships. So partnering with people and organizations that live through or work with the other intersections that we don't, I think is a really great way for us as, as a youth movement to move forward. So that's a little bit about what we've been doing so far. That's really incredible to hear. Thank you. I think it's so important as well when you talk about partnerships and that collaboration is recognizing, you know, one person cannot have all the knowledge and we need to be listening. It comes back to that listening. And, and I think that it's that collaboration, which brings so much richness. And I really appreciate you saying as well, 
about you still having a long way to go. I think that recognition, we will never achieve a point where everything is done. There will always be more that we can do. And having that approach, I think, is so important that that, that development and improvement in, in the way that, that you're working to be more inclusive and accessible is so, so crucial. So it's really great to hear that. Yeah, thank you so much. No problem. Um, I would absolutely love to hear now um, any highlights that you have had so far with the work with Empedada Klima. Yes, for sure. I mean, I will say that there's been a lot of exciting work that we've been doing, but what I really love to hear the most when from people that follow our work at Empedada Klima is that they found their platform through doing research or using our database of content that we have in four languages in their schoolwork or university work or used our content as a reference in some way. I think that's super exciting because one of our main goals, as I mentioned, is sharing knowledge. So seeing that that's already a reality and actually our first volunteer, which um, is from Ireland, uh, actually found this that way by doing research for her master thesis on gender and climate and then finding a platform. So right now in almost two years of existence, we have over a dozen volunteers doing work all over the world. Um, I would say a big highlight is definitely having been invited by the UN Climate Change Convention to do a bunch of joint work on, on gender products. So one of them was moderating a few of their workshops on mainstreaming gender in national climate plans, which happened in 2020, as well as some social media work, videos that we've done for them. So that means a lot because it really shows that we're starting to become um, a reference in terms of youth work because there are so many amazing um, gender and climate movements uh, all over the world, but we really focus on that youth side of things and understanding that we need to have that youth perspective in what we do. So that's what Care About Climate is all about as well. So we've been able to really establish ourselves in that way, which is quite exciting. I mentioned some cool partnerships, even with Latinos for Climate that I know you're familiar with. I saw the, the podcast interview with Valentina. She's amazing. And they do a lot of similar work as well on gender and climate. So it's been excited to join forces with so many amazing movements in Latin America and all over the world. And then another one that's quite recent that I would love to mention is our work with Transform Education. Transform Education is a youth-led coalition hosted by the UN Girls' Education Initiative. So it basically consists of some youth-led networks and young activists that are working to, to, to transform education for gender equality in a few thematic areas, very similar to the generation equality movement that I mentioned. And one of them is education for gender equality and gender justice and climate justice, sorry. And starting just last month, we, we're launching a working group in this area. So Impodera Klima was invited to be one of the facilitators, one of the leader of this working group, uh, along with the Rise Up Movement, uh, which is led by Vanessa Nakate, which is such an amazing and inspiring leader from Uganda. So it's it's been really great working with such great people from different regions and kind of exploring different areas. So yes, our focus is gender and climate, but we try to go to the education side of things and the youth side of things and the climate finance side of things. So there's a lot of really great things happening um, in terms of where we can go basically over this platform. So I'm really happy about that. That's so exciting to hear. And I think that that sense of community and reaching out is just so, so valuable. And it sounds like there's so much exciting things to come for the work that you're doing. And also it's wonderful to hear that people are uh, discovering your platform from an educational basis and then engaging in the work that you're doing and actually supporting it and helping develop it moving forwards. So it's, it's super nice. And 
I'm glad that you mentioned youth as well. And I would love to ask as well for any youth that may be listening, what advice can you give to them in engaging more in kind of the UN level discussions? Because it can feel like a huge huge um, gap to bridge to, to go from like learning about this stuff and then engaging it at a more kind of political level and within the UN discussions. Yes, I completely agree. And what I would say is, even though now five or six years later, after I started my climate justice activism, it, it can feel like, you know, I'm in so many spaces, attending so many conferences, but I've definitely been there where I had no idea what I was doing or how I could actually make an impact in terms of joining those spaces, especially being from Brazil and the UN in New York being far away and things like that. So I I can definitely relate to people who maybe feel a little bit of a disconnect in that sense. So my advice is always find a a local NGO or a group in your community or hometown and see where you fit in. Because that's what I did. I joined this local NGO back in the day. And at first I did a lot of local activism, like going to my state's legislative assembly to advocate for climate policy at the state level, or attending protests and action movements, and then kind of building my way up to going to a COP at the UN, for example. I always like to mention that everyone has their own superpower in terms of activism to reach a sustainable future, and they are all different. So for me, my superpower in in terms of activism is related to public speaking and policymaking and using my voice in high-level decision-making spaces because that's where I feel most comfortable in. But for example, for someone that's more of an introvert, that might not be the case, which does not mean you cannot do your part to foster climate action and transformational change. So maybe it's doing research work if you're an academic or drawing and creating designs for social media or doing poetry. So I love following the people that are in the art movement, which I'm not really good at, but I think it's so inspiring, so so beautiful. And it really makes people think, right? And, and reflect on, on what sustainability looks like in the future. So my advice would be, Find your superpower, find what makes you excited and comfortable in this work for, for climate action and, the, and then the opportunities to attend those kinds of events will hopefully follow that. That's such a beautiful approach to, da- to take, like finding your superpower. I think that's so empowering in itself is just recognizing that everyone has a strength that they can contribute. And it's just about exploring and allowing yourself to find that and probably not being afraid to make mistakes as well, because maybe you don't find the fit that's right for you first time. Yeah, exactly. And just know that it takes time. Like I said, with Impodera Clima, I've heard about gender and climate in 2015. Then I attended this conference in 2017, and then we launched in 2019. So it really is a process. So uh, as an activist, having patience with things is super important, but understand that you have your value, you have your superpowers, just a matter of, um, finding that and exploring that further, uh, which may take a while, but I know that everyone has that. And just looking from, from seeing from the people that I work with and the climate activists that I know, everyone adds to the fight uh, to combat climate change so much. So know that you can contribute, contribute and you should contribute because we need everyone if, if we want to solve climate change. Yeah, what a wonderful message to send. Thank you so much. And I just have one final question for you, which I always ask at the end of the podcast, which is how you find your little bit of Largum, which is all about balance, not too little, not too much. Um, So it'd be great to hear what yours is. Yeah, I love that question. I think for me, as I mentioned, because climate change is such an overwhelming issue and stressful and and difficult to deal with, because a lot of people even 
there's there's something called echo anxiety. So it can give you anxiety to see all of the bad news that we see on the media and see how far, I guess, in a way we are to achieve um, sustainable and just climate action. So for me, the way that I try to achieve that balance is by looking at the lighter things in life as well. And I love watching uh, very funny and sweet shows, for example, on Netflix or listening to music. I love Bossa Nova, which is this amazing genre of, of Brazilian music. So putting on loud music and allowing yourself to have those breaks is super important. I, I, I remember seeing a post by Greta Thunberg, which is this amazing climate activist. I'm sure everyone knows her. And she was also talking about how it's so important to take a break and you know just stop for a little bit and focus on yourself, whatever that means to you in terms of mental health and things like that. So for me, it's definitely listening to some calm and relaxing music and watching some um, funny shows um, when I am able to have a break because I feel like climate justice activism is always going to be with you even when you're on vacation because it's part of, for me, it's part of who I am, right? So it's never going to go away, but you have to allow yourself to have those moments of relaxation and of, of calmness amid all the chaos that we see every day. Definitely. I think that that's so, so important because it can be so difficult to switch off from these things because it's constantly happening and it can bring you so much anxiety, but finding those ways that work for you to to allow yourself rest is so important. And I've been hearing a lot of people as well, like you've mentioned Greta Thunberg and also, I don't know if you've heard of Michaela Loach. Um, she's like a UK-based climate justice activist and she gets a lot of inspiration from civil rights activists like Audre Lorde and Angela Davis. And they talk a lot about rest as being radical and the importance of allowing allowing rest because it does counteract a system that is quite damaging and yeah, allowing that rest and being sustainable in yourself in order to build a sustainable future, I think is is so important. Yeah, exactly. I love that rest as being radical. And I'm, I mean, I'm still not even there. I, I'm still working every day to kind of achieve that balance, especially in a pandemic world, you have to kind of find those limits yourself, which is super hard. So if anyone can relate to that, it's definitely been a challenge. But I do think that you have to find that because that's when you're able to have your um, your best, I guess, climate activism in a way. You're able to be your best self and present yourself and really represent who you are, your community in whatever conference you attend or whatever space that you attend. Because that, at the end of the day, that's super important. It's about representing who you are and what you stand for any, in any way you can, anywhere you can. Yeah, for sure. And I'm so sure that so many people listening and including myself relate to that so much. So that will be a very much appreciated message. Yes, definitely. I mean, it's been a pleasure. It's always it's always great to exchange ideas on this because we're all still learning. I'm still young and just looking for ways to be a better climate activist. So having those exchanges and talking to amazing people like yourself and amazing people that are part of this uh, of this movement is super inspiring. And honestly, it's what keeps me going. I mean, having that inspiration from other people. So I'm super glad. Oh, thank you so much. No, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. You've got such a wonderful energy and have so much optimism and insight and information. And yeah, it's just been an absolute joy to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thank you so much for the invite. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Renata, so much for all of your insight and positivity. It was just really lovely to chat with you.
If you want to find out more about the work that Renata is doing or Empedella Klima, you can find her on Instagram at Renata underscore Alvarenga. And you can also follow Empedella Klima at Empedella Klima. And this will all be attached in the show notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do share with family and friends. And if you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate it so much. If you have any thoughts from any of the episodes or you just want to drop a message to ask any questions, you can find me on Instagram at a little bit of Largum, or you can email me on a little bit of Largum at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll speak to you again soon. Bye.